0: Marcus and I'm Stefan Wolf. Welcome to Navigating the Vortex. We are delighted to be with you for our weekly catch up and a deep dive into some of the most important and complex issues of today and tomorrow. On today's
1: episode we'll be talking about the impact of the U.S default about various regional and global summits and how all roads lead to Kiev for now at least. But there are also some key corporate governance issues this time in Japan, and what they mean for the world's economy. And we'll finish by looking ahead at the global geopolitical and geoeconomic agenda.
0: First, a catch-up. On a recent episode, we talked about the U.S.'s impending potential default on its debt as the Republicans block the annual raising of the debt ceiling. The U.S. Treasury has now given the deadline as the 5th of June, and on Friday, President Biden and House Leader McCarthy said they had the framework of a deal. But now is when the real hard work begins in Congress to build a bipartisan majority voting in favor of this deal. All the while, the deadline of the 5th of June is drawing ever closer and is still hanging over our globally collective heads.
1: And we have started to see some of the consequences around the world, haven't we?
0: Yeah. Fitch, the credit rating agency, has placed the U.S.'s AAA rating on watch for possible downgrade. In a statement last Wednesday evening, Fitch said that the move reflected, quote, increased political partisanship that is hindering reaching a resolution on the debt ceiling. They also said the brinkmanship over the debt ceiling, failure of the U.S. authorities to meaningfully tackle medium-term fiscal challenges that will lead to rising budget deficits— And a growing debt burden signaled downside risks to U.S. creditworthiness. A second rating agency's DBRS Morningstar followed suit on Thursday, saying the under-review with negative implications reflects the risk of Congress failing to increase or suspend the debt ceiling in a timely manner. Ironically, the markets have been fairly quiet. They went crazy over a fake photo of a bomb at the Pentagon a week or so ago, but an actual emergency? Not so much. Talking to people in the markets and at banks, it seems that somehow they still have faith that no responsible party would let the world economy tank. And they're correct. But that isn't who we are dealing with, especially on the extreme right of the Republican Party, where they have shown us time and time again that the pandemonium is a feature, not a bug. As the wise words of the extraordinary Maya Angelou taught us, when someone shows you who they are, believe them the first time.
1: If you missed our earlier episode on the debt ceiling, you might be interested in going back to have a listen as we talk through the implications specifically for the rest of the world outside of the US. And we'll be keeping a close eye on that in the coming days. On to business then. Last week we wrote about... Two of the topics that we have covered for some time, China and the war in Ukraine.
0: Yes, indeed. And we looked at that very much from the perspective of a series of summits among all the major players. True that.
1: Major players and those who want to be and those who are quartered by the major players. To begin with the latter. Chinese President Xi Jinping hosted the leaders of all the Central Asian states—that's Kazakhstan, Kyrgyzstan, Tajikistan, Turkmenistan and Uzbekistan—in the Chinese city of Xi'an.
0: That's where the ancient Silk Road started, right?
1: Exactly. And its modern-day version, China's Belt and Road Initiative, featured heavily at the summit. Overall, China and the Central Asian states signed a staggering 54 agreements and 9 multilateral documents including the Xi'an Declaration, and they set up a further 19 new cooperation mechanisms and platforms.
0: And is all of that real?
1: Well, the proof will, as always, be in the implementation. But there can be no doubt that China has grown to become Central Asia's major economic partner over the past three decades since these countries became independent after the dissolution of the Soviet Union. And now it is gradually replacing Russia also as the region's major political and security partner.
0: Out of the frying pan and into the fire, then?
1: That remains to be seen. For the elites in these countries, this is a question of regime survival. China is keen to retain the region as a key transit hub for overland connections to its valuable European markets, This means large-scale investment into road, rail and port infrastructure, especially with an eye to expanding the capacity of the so-called Middle Corridor that connects China via the Caspian Sea, the South Caucasus, and then Turkey or the Black Sea to Europe. That's important for China because the traditional route, the so-called Northern Corridor through Russia and Belarus, is now mostly closed because of the sanctions imposed on those two countries as a consequence of the war in Ukraine. That's also something I spoke about at a webinar I co-organized with the Foreign Policy Center in London, where I'm a senior fellow.
0: Well, we'll put a link to that webinar from YouTube on the Navigating the Vortex website. So if anybody's interested in taking a look at that, they can. Let's come back to Ukraine in a second. Let me just pick up on one other thing you mentioned earlier. The cooperation with China is a question of regime survival for the elites. But what about the ordinary people in Central Asia?
1: That's a tricky question and a risk, including for China. On the one hand, China has poured some 70 billion U.S. dollars into the region since 2005, according to data from the American Enterprise Institute. But that has had little tangible effect on living conditions, other than perhaps detrimental environmental impacts. There's quite significant anti-Chinese sentiment across the region. Partly because many Chinese projects have traditionally not created local jobs, but rather imported Chinese labor. And partly because Kazakh, Uzbek and Kyrgyz minorities in China have been caught up in China's crackdown on Uyghurs and other Muslims in Xinjiang. So while elites may embrace China and its governance model, populations are far more skeptical if not outright hostile to China.
0: Speaking of China skepticism, that was a major theme of the G7 summit, wasn't it?
1: Yes, it was alongside Ukraine, of course. There was quite a lot going on at the summit, which was also attended by the Prime Minister of India, Narendra Modi, and President Luiz Inácio Lula da Silva of Brazil.
0: But the star guest was Ukraine's President Zelensky. Correct. He had stopped over
1: at the Arab League Summit, addressing leaders there and having a bilateral meeting with the Saudi Crown Prince Mohammed bin Salman. The G7, in a way, was then the endpoint of Zelensky's tour over the past month, which started in Rome and took him via Berlin, Paris and London, to Jeddah, and then to Hiroshima. He gained important new promises and commitments from his Western partners to support the war effort against Russia's invasion. And even the Arab League's Jeddah Declaration makes reference to the importance of respect for the sovereignty, independence, and territorial integrity of states, a much stronger statement than what they issued only half a year ago in November last year in the so called Algiers Declaration after their last summit.
0: We covered some of the more complex geopolitical and geoeconomic dynamics of this in last week's On Our Radar, where we examined how China-West relations are evolving in light of these two summits in Jian and Hiroshima. A side note, if listeners missed that, they can go back to the website and read it or listen to the podcast.
1: Indeed, and one of the points we made there has been another long-running theme for us, geopolitical fragmentation. What did you make of the G7 leaders' statement as a whole and their statement on economic resilience and economic security?
0: On one level, it was all about intentions and ambitions. But on another level, there seems to be a clear direction of travel. The G7 want to quote, enhance resilient supply chains through partnerships around the world, especially for critical goods such as critical minerals, semiconductors and batteries. They want to build resilient critical infrastructure, which requires a rigorous evaluation of equipment consistent with existing measures such as those outlined in the Prague proposal and the EU's 5G toolbox.
1: That's quite a mouthful, but really it's just code for keeping Huawei out.
0: It is, alongside the statement that the G7, quote, reaffirm the need to assess political, economic, and other risks of a non-technical nature posed by vendors and suppliers. And then there are statements like, quote, we will further strengthen multilateral efforts to cooperate in the field of export controls to ensure gaps in our dual-use technology protection ecosystem cannot be exploited. This goes hand-in-hand with statements like, quote, we will therefore deepen our strategic dialogue to seek to counter malicious practices in the digital sphere to protect global value and supply chains from illegitimate influence, espionage, illicit knowledge, leakage, and sabotage.
1: So, this really just sounds like a great game of diplomatic word bingo, but in the end, this is all about China.
0: Interestingly, the statement on economic resilience and economic security, from which I have just quoted, doesn't mention China even once. But there is, of course, a long list of concerns about China in the G7 Hiroshima leaders' communique. And the statement on economic resilience and economic security reads a bit like an approach to those concerns, especially when the G7 leaders state, quote, We will counter malign practices such as an illegitimate technology transfer or data disclosure. We will foster resilience to economic coercion. We also recognize the necessity of protecting certain advanced technologies that could be used to threaten our national security without unduly limiting trade and investment.
1: This sounds like there are some quite significant implications for the private sector here as well.
0: Well, without question. We talked about business resilience and the impact of government regulation on compliance in an earlier edition of On Our Radar. But there is another dimension here that flows directly from the geopolitical and geoeconomic restructuring that we're seeing as a result of the war in Ukraine and the intensifying competition with China. And that's reshoring, nearshoring, and friendshoring which is at the heart of the idea of, quote, resilient supply chains through partnerships around the world.
1: These shoring discussions are definitely something we will talk about in a future edition of Navigating the Vortex, and one that we are keeping a close eye on. In the meantime, we have a couple of other things on our radar. For me, that includes more summitry. First, NATO foreign ministers will be meeting in Oslo, and then there is the second meeting of the so-called European political community, which takes place on the 1st of June in Moldova. It's the second such gathering since the inaugural in Prague last year. Mm -hmm. Apart from the Vatican, Russia and Belarus, everyone in Europe is a member now. And they have already scheduled the next two summits after this one, first in Grenada and Spain in the autumn, and then in the UK next spring. Now, the agenda for Moldova might be a shift away from the seemingly never-ending preoccupation with the war in Ukraine, especially if President Zelensky isn't coming. While there will be support for Ukraine and condemnation of Russia, other conflicts might be high on the agenda as well. There's the conflict between Armenia and Azerbaijan over Nagorno-Karabakh. And then there are the EU's mediation efforts there. And possibly Kosovo might feature as well, especially after the latest riots there in the north. Plus, I also expect some follow-through on the G7 cybersecurity agenda. Whatever comes of it, I will likely post a debrief sometime on Friday.
0: And we'll make sure it hits all your inboxes as soon as it's published. As we are both fans of the euro... I am sure we will mark the 25th anniversary of the establishment of the European Central Bank on the 1st of June, probably with a Euro-themed cake. Do you think they have those at Costco? More seriously, there are a couple of other things that came to my attention that are worth highlighting. To the naked eye, they will look like disparate threads, but actually they are part of the geopolitical and geoeconomic hum that is part of being able to navigate the vortex. The theme in this case will come as no surprise to the Navigating the Vortex community. Money is global and inexorably linked to geopolitics. That has its plus sides and minus sides. It has three components. The threat of default by the US government, the recent banking sector crisis, and Japanese corporate governance.
1: And how do you connect these three seemingly separate issues?
0: Well, here's how it goes. There is an underlying drumbeat of a sense of economic instability linked with political instability. The concerns that were raised under Trump as president with his xenophobia and American First agenda and his own unreliability and penchant for favoring totalitarian leaders started the world down the path of worrying about the reliability and perhaps for the sanity of the United States. Biden brought some of those concerns to heel, but with the actions of the Republicans and the prospect of Trump as the frontrunner as a Republican candidate for president, the world can see that the extremist elements in the U.S. will not abate anytime soon. When the issue of raising the debt ceiling, which should have been a matter of course, became a genuine threat of default, the fragile sense of stability that was building began to show cracks. I believe I shall call it the fool me once doctrine of geopolitics and geoeconomics. As such, even though it is distinctly possible that the full default crisis may be averted this time, the world senses how close we came to the abyss and will now be hypervigilant for signs of this kind of activity. Coupled with this are the ripple effects of the recent failures in the banking sector what some might consider relatively small banks failing, and yet having an impact on the global banking sector. With banks on edge already, calling into question some of the world's supposedly safest assets, U.S. Treasury bonds, doesn't help to quell those concerns and leaves behind a sense of nowhere to go in a flight to safety.
1: So where does Japanese corporate governance come into it?
0: Well, it's AGM season in Japan. And eight years ago, I wrote about the forced transformation of corporate governance in Japan, prompted in no small part by international investors expecting Japanese companies to adhere to universal principles of good corporate governance.
1: Can you put a link to that article on the Navigating the Vortex website?
0: For sure. So, in brief, for the last 10 years or so, there has been a sharp rise in cross-border investing. Sovereign wealth funds, pension funds, global investment banks, and hedge funds do not invest only in their own backyard. They scour the planet looking for places to put their money, and they expect companies that receive it to play by rational rules. This is especially true if investors are guided by principles that go beyond financial returns. Global funds that uphold ethical standards concerning labor practices and environmental protections are safeguarding the global ecosystem on which they and the rest of us depend. As they establish and implement such principles, the resulting momentum has been changing corporate governance and behavior across industries and regions. Norway's sovereign wealth fund has been very active in this space, pushing for changing governance rules and better reporting by companies on how they are addressing climate change. So the spotlight is back on Japan as international investors are taking public stands on the corporate governance of companies this year, like Toyota and Canon, regarding issues of independence, compensation, board diversity, and transparency on issues like climate change. This is the positive side of the interlinking of the economies around the world, best practices in areas like corporate governance.
1: It is a sharp reminder that even if a country wants to think of itself as isolated and doing their own thing, be it the US or Japan, in both politics and economics there is no such thing as isolationism, because money doesn't know borders and we are all dependent on one another.
0: Indeed, and that is the very reason that Navigating the Vortex exists. A big thanks to all our readers, listeners, followers, and subscribers. We launched about a month and a half ago, and now more than 100,000 of you get our newsletter and podcast delivered straight to you all over the world. If you haven't signed up for the newsletter, you can register for free at navigatingthevortex.com, and you'll also get articles and videos. You can also subscribe for subscriber-only access to comments and chats and other subscriber-only benefits.
1: Importantly, you'll also be able to read the full written version of all our pieces, which gives you all of the background links to the reports and information we cite in case you want to dive deeper and, like us, like to look at primary sources. We hope you'll share Navigating the Vortex with anyone you think might find it of interest, including on social media.
0: If you like the show, please consider rating and reviewing us on Apple Podcasts or wherever you're listening. Thanks again. Goodbye. Goodbye.